Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the honor of speaking with Rick Chamney. As an expert in physical rehabilitation for performers in the arts and athletes in sport for more than 25 years, his career has allowed him to follow his passion. He's developed artistic athletes with organizations like Cirque du Soleil, as well as individual and performance team athletes from dozens of sports. Rick started his career with Cirque du Soleil as a part of the Mystere show in Las Vegas. His career spent stints with resident shows in Vegas and touring shows through Europe and Japan. And finally at the headquarters in Montreal where he became the director of medicine and rehabilitation. After leaving Cirque, he moved to Zurich and focused on being a stay-at-home dad, one of the most challenging and rewarding experiences of his life. Most recently, he's gone back into the world of his passion and has begun to teach as a guest lecturer for a master's of sports administration program in Lausanne, Switzerland, as well as consulting with artistic athletes from all over Europe. He is dedicated to developing teams, finding a Mac and maximizing human connection with confidence and humility and sharing knowledge to save or develop another person's career. He's lived an eclectic life and his story is well worth a listen. Welcome, Rick. Hey, thanks, Scotty. So, you know, like I was saying just before we got on, you and I have uh, sort of known each other, bumped into each other, respected each other uh, professionally, but never really had a chance to sit down and spend a lot of time together. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm curious, when you look back at your career in some ways, um, did you think it would be what it has been? Oh, that's a great question. No, is, is the <laughs> answer. I mean, I, I got out of school in, in uh, 92 with my first degree, and I think like a lot of us, I thought that I'd be working in pro sport and you know, being that guy on the sidelines without even realizing what it was. Uh, and it developed in many different ways. And honestly, in 2001, when I finally went and joined Cirque, it was meant to be a one-year gig. And, uh, you know, 12 years later, I was still there, and I'm still in love with performing arts. So, no, I, I have no idea. And, in fact, that kind of changes from six-month period to six-month period. I just... Keep rolling with it. It's wonderful. The reason why I started with that question, I usually don't sort of cut into the middle of somebody's uh, world or even make them look back right immediately. But it's interesting having some of my own personal thoughts and then some of the connection with some younger athletic therapists uh, and, and different performance professionals. Everybody 
has this perception that, you know, they see who you are now and they go, Oh, wow, you did all this stuff and you worked for the circ and you ran this and you, uh, but they don't really understand where it all came from. And right. a lot of times they think that we manifested it from some plan, grand plan, you know, or, or it yeah. all just sort of ruled out. And that's obviously not by reading your, your synopsis is not what happened. So why don't we roll back to a little bit to what were some of those young early influences in your life that got you into sports? Uh, the got me into sports, and I was a I was a student athlete when I was at university, uh, and I was injured quite often. You know, I had I had incredibly bad habits entirely through my fault. Like uh, my my coach was fantastic, but uh, he couldn't corral me, uh, <laughs> and, and I got injured a lot consequently. Uh, so I, I had some some fantastic uh, therapists that worked with me at uh, at the Glenn Sather Clinic at the U of A and started to stream towards athletic therapy because I thought it would be fun and kind of fit with what my student schedule looked like. But uh, at, at the U of A, we were just so fortunate. We had giants like uh, like Dave McGee and, and David Reed who were lecturing to us. And uh, the lectures were important, but <clears throat> less important than the influence that they gave. Mm. Uh, so, so they piqued my interest and I realized that I had such a passion for the human body and, and how it moves and what it does and for humans and mm. what they're accomplished are able to accomplish that uh, I just kept going with it. And yeah, it's, it's been, it's been quite a wild ride. So for sure the, the two days were, were huge early, early influences on me, uh, participating in, and working with some, some cool athletes in my early university practicums <clears throat> And teammates that, that were on the same uh, track and field team as I was mm. really helped me to, to understand that we can do amazing things and there's always a better way because we're all individuals. And if we try to cookie cutter our rehabilitation approach or our life approach, frankly, then uh, we, <laughs> we run into roadblocks very quickly. You grew up in a in small town, rural Alberta, with Medicine Hat and some other small towns. Small town Canada is hockey Canada uh, to yeah. a degree. And what was the hockey influence in your life, or was there one when you were growing up? Did was that oh. a part of of sort of of um, you know who 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 or what you were attracted to as a kid? Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, rural Alberta is is. Uh, it's a hockey mecca. It's a many thing mecca. It's an oil mecca and a cattle mecca and a redneck mecca and uh, a wonderful family atmosphere mecca. It's, it's, mm. it's a beautiful place to grow up. Uh, so I, I played, obviously, as, as all kids do. I mean, you learn how to, to walk and then you learn how to skate and then you learn how to run. Uh, but only until I was about 13, our, our family was, uh, we struggled a bit uh, financially. So my brother was older and he liked track and field. And when I turned about 13, uh, my parents decided that we're going to do one sport in this family and it's going to be track and field. Okay. <laughs> so, but, uh, but I never lost my, my love for the game and I was able to work in, in the CHL for, for three years, uh, with the Edmonton and, and Kootenai ice. That was awesome. Uh, I worked with, uh, uh, Hockey Canada. I went to uh, the 97 under 18 championships with a bunch of 17 and 18 year olds who are mostly now retired from playing. <laughs> Gosh, we're getting old, Scotty. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
exactly. <laughs> I try not to reflect on that too often. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> one of those things. Uh, you know, I, and I kept hockey as part of, as part of my sport career because the, the people were fantastic. Uh, there was lots of input to have, you know, adding uh, a sports science basis to something that was uh, very dogmatic and, and, and cultural. Mm. You know, for a guy my size, I mean, you know me, I'm, I'm six foot and maybe 150 pounds. Uh, so for a guy my size to come in and talk to people about how they can do off-ice conditioning, it, it leaves a little bit of convincing. Uh, but when you when you break things down and you keep it simple, uh, I was able to work with some fantastic guys, and, and I still keep in touch with a lot of them. All of them are almost retired. I was, I was able to have dinner with one when I was in Munich touring with this German pop star last year. He's finishing his career. He's playing in, in Munich now. I worked with him from when he was 16 to 19. Wow. And now he's the father of three. And uh, we were having dinner and the check came and I pulled my wallet out and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I was, was going to pay. And he said, no, 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 no. You paid when I wasn't working. I said, mm. now I pay. <laughs> well, I wasn't about to argue. God love <laughs> but it's, it, it's kept a bond there. You know, it, it's, it's such a part of our culture in Canada and, uh, certainly in the, in the rural aspects. And I, I think that as I, I look at the performing arts and the culture that, that exists here, it's not tremendously divergent mm -hmm. in terms of uh, the family aspect that, that comes out of it. So mm -hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue back into that in a, in a little bit. I just want to play into the piece you said before about coming up in a family that didn't have a lot. What was that? Um, what is, how has that shaped you? Uh, and how, how did it play a role in, in your success or in, in your challenges in some ways? Uh, it, it's, it's played a role in, in everything, you know, how we're raised and, and how we develop shapes a lot of, of who we are, both in terms of, we know what to do and both in terms of, we know what not to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it didn't make me frugal, uh, much to uh, much to my daughter's <laughs> uh, detriment or <laughs> disappointment, rather. Uh, that, that said, I did gain an appreciation for being thankful for what you have, mm. uh, uh, rather than looking for what you don't. And if there's something that is that is not there that you feel you absolutely need, uh, sit with it for a bit and decide if it's something that you want or do you need. Mm. And then where does it go from there and how can you manifest it? Mm. Uh, and, you know, people have different, different beliefs, but the more that I, I sit with things and the more I decide whether it's something that I need or something that I want, uh, and then you go into the depths of need and want, uh, the opportunities for it tend to arise. And very often there are things that were right there but you were too busy thinking about whether you needed it or wanted it. Mm -hmm. You take a look and it's like, Oh gosh, there it is. But I, I think that had everything been there for me when, when I was younger, I, I may not had, I've had that appreciation. Uh, and, and my parents, everyone's parents have tremendous character and tremendous flaws. Uh, mine were, were no different, uh, but they, they did keep things, on an even keel with respect to 
uh, all things material. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, no, what, what, what do we need? And, and do we have enough to eat? And can we make it through? And, and yeah, my house had wheels, but uh, that's all right. What's the, uh, the greatest gift your, uh, each of your parents gave you, both individually or together? I, I think that the greatest gift that my that my mom gave to me, they've been separate for so long that it's tough to think of them as a, as a mm-hmm. unified group. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, the biggest gift my mom gave me was to appreciate intellect. Mm-hmm. Uh, she read to me when I was very young. Uh, she taught me to play chess when I was five. Uh, and she she still pushes it. Even when I see her now when she's in her you know, late 70s, that, you know, make sure that you know where your mind is going. Make sure that you know where what your mind is doing. Uh, but it was always done with love and compassion. It was it was never with uh, with the carrot and the stick. Mm-hmm. And and my dad taught me an incredible sense of being there for your kids. Uh, even if we didn't have a lot, he was still the guy that would volunteer to coach the hockey team and would volunteer to coach the track and field team in Provost, Alberta, a little town of 1300 out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it would lobby the, the community center to make sure that they had a gravel track at least built in the, in the school grounds around the baseball diamonds. So that the kids that wanted to train track and field uh, could run and, you know, would drive us back and forth to, to track and field meets where we get our butts smoked by actual people that were training in <laughs> big cities like Saskatoon and Edmonton. Um, but he, he made that commitment to his kids, which was, uh, it seemed normal at the time, Scott, but, but now that I know where we were, mm-hmm. seeing how, how challenging that must have been for him to do. Uh, and he never did it with uh, anything but, but love. So I'm, I'm incredibly thankful for that. That's awesome. Speaking of needs and wants, when you were in college and you started to recognize that this profession was something that you wanted to do, when did it become a need to do? When did you, when did you feel it inside that you, you were in the right place or doing the right thing or going after the right thing? Uh, gross anatomy. I, I thought it was going to be gross, like disgusting, <laughs> but uh, it was, it was so incredibly fascinating. And I think it was within two weeks of, <clears throat> of our first time in the cadaver lab that we had a lecture with, with Dave McGee where he got philosophical for a moment. And he did that from time to time, which was such a gift now. And, at times, such a pain at the time <laughs> because well, you're in your twenties and it's like, Oh, come on. <laughs> Can you just finish up? Uh, but he, he talked about two things. One of them was, was the nucleuses or the nuclei of information that we have in our field, which are anatomy, physiology, and biomechanics. And that if you understand those, everything else is easy. Mm-hmm which is absolutely true. You know, if you see how something moves and you understand what the pieces of it are and you understand how it works, then individual differences aside, you just have to parse through that and, and, and it all works out. And, and the second bit was about, in our profession, making yourself indispensable. 
and he didn't mean it like uh, in an egotistical way. Mm. Uh, it, it was it, it harkened back to a story that I heard later from a friend of mine who was playing on the Oilers. Uh, and when he first started joining the team, you know, this this uh, gray-haired guy wearing his tie and his dockers comes to the locker room and picks up a towel and throws it in the bin. And one of the players that he was meant to see said, oh, are you the new towel guy? And he just said, no. And he walked in and it turned out that that was the Dr. McGee that he was meant to see it. That's just like in the morning. <laughs> it wasn't making yourself indispensable, making sure everyone thinks about me. It was, uh, if you see something on the floor, pick it up. If something needs to be done, get it done. If you're too busy, tell somebody. Hmm. I, I, I liked the, the simplicity of the intellect with the nuclear information. And I really liked the idea of doing what you can for your fellow man and mm. fellow woman when the time comes. Yeah. You worked uh, or went to school with one of the legends in the, in the business has written a few textbooks that people uh, refer to quite frequently. Um, yeah. still got it at my shelf <laughs> <laughs> last week as a matter of fact, with a client. <laughs> Is there any other story or lesson you could uh, bring to the table about uh, Fibber McGee that uh, people would uh, resonate with? Well, I, I think that they would, especially the, the younger people that are listening, might think that it's it's always just magic from from uh, Dr. McGee when when he's lecturing to you and teaching you. Mm. There are times, frankly, when it's terrifying. Uh, I, I, I took. A, two graduate level uh, sport physiotherapy classes with him during my, my master's degree. So it was me and I think another AT master and a bunch of physio master students and Dr. McGee in this uh, seminar presentation class. And he formatted it in such a way that he gave you, this is what your injury and what your patient is going to look like. You have a few weeks to put it together and then you're going to present it to the class which all sounded relatively easy. And I thought, well, that's, that's a quite an easy way to construct a class. Nice job. Because I, I, I liked the man already from my undergraduate days. It was, it was perfect. But it was, it was one of the toughest classes ever, Scotty, because you, you present things. And I was maybe the third or fourth presenter of the, of the weeks that were going. And he would just sit at the back of the room and take notes and let all of your classmates ask questions to you. And then... And then he would wait for everyone to be finished, and then he would ask his questions. <laughs> and they were incredibly simple. You know, uh, why would you choose to mobilize this at this time? And you'd give an answer, and he wouldn't give a response except for, are you sure? <laughs> it, it, was, it was awful and wonderful. Like, if, if you said, yes, I'm sure, but you were wrong, you, you were quite sure after the first two students that you would be sent away to go and relearn some things. And if you weren't sure, he would ask you why you put it in your presentation in the first place. <laughs> you, you'd be absolutely spot on, which, again, was terrifying at the time, but it, it was absolutely fantastic. You know, for, in our profession, we don't do – we're not putting any, anybody on the moon, right? You right. Know, we, have some pretty simplistic principles. So if we if we keep it simple and we have our, our good basis of knowledge, then yeah, I'm I'm sure that's that's exactly what I would do. And <clears throat> you know, if I'm not, I'll go ask somebody, and then we'll we'll find a good way around it. So he he was he was amazing amazing uh, 
teacher in that respect. You know, he, he gave people enough rope to, to hang themselves, but he wouldn't let them dangle for too long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now that you've started teaching yourself, what do you what do you reflect upon as the the hallmarks of a good teacher or a good uh, professor? Well, if I just relate to myself, I don't know if I have a whole bunch of <laughs> benchmarks because I, I don't know how good I am. I, I enjoy it, and, and usually the classes laugh. Yes, good. I, I like people that that have a really firm grounding in, in what they know, uh, but an equivalent grounding in what they don't know. Mm. For me, that's that's true confidence. And that, with all of the instructors I, I ever had, always resonated the, the highest with me. You know, you're confident enough to say, this is, this is where it is. Let's see what you have to say about it. Oh, I didn't know that part. Mm. So let's... Let's try to find a way. Hmm. Uh, it, it's it's always struck me as being one of the, the benchmarks is is true confidence is what I call it. You know, confidence in what you know, but also confidence in what you don't know, hmm. and is to accept it. Hmm. Uh, he was fantastic at that. I, I try to be good at that. It, the, the the lecture I do in Lausanne is with the masters of sports administration students, uh, all of whom have at least one degree already. They're all in their thirties. Uh, so this circus guy comes in and, and lectures to them about uh, risk management and, and uh, performance medicine delivery. Well, it's it's a multilingual environment. It's a, a multicultural environment. There's people from different uh, socioeconomic and professional backgrounds. So the, the, the questions are outrageous. I, I thought the first year I did it five years ago that they would be all about, oh, well, how do the contortionists do this? And how does the trapeze flyer do that? But no, no, they got, they got very in-depth. Uh, you know, last year I got a question about uh, should it be mandatory for you know, cardiac screening for all circus artists? Because uh, a, a friend of mine uh, had only a few months before passed away in, in, uh, in Paris uh, at the age of 32. But his... his, uh, his, his condition that ended up being the, the cause of his death was never uh, discovered. Mm. So the, the philosophical question came up as to whether should it have been discovered during the time he worked for Sir Dessalet because he wasn't at the time? Uh, should it not have been discovered? Would it have changed anything? Mm. Uh, would it have changed the fact that he would have been on stage, not been on stage? Professional sport, it's, it's a much different question to ask because you're, you're, you're dealing with the uh, uh, someone who could pass away during during a game, and it's it's a tragedy for for everyone who's involved. But it's also you know years within the development process, and years down the depth chart, and and everything else you have to look at. Never mind the safety of a human being involved. Uh, so as as we were having that discussion, which was a very odd discussion to have in a masters of sports administration class. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have a good answer for my for my for my friend Raf and what he should have done or what anyone else should have done for them. But I was really interested to hear what their opinions were, and they were all over the spectrum. Hmm. Not to, not as one would expect. You know, the 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 Brazilian might be more flamboyant. Say, so, oh, they do what they want, and the Russian might be, well, you can't possibly have someone like that on the stage. But they were all over the place. Hmm. And it, was, it was really a lively conversation. Uh, 
it was one that I made it through, thankfully. You know, a few months after my friend. <laughs> I was having this conversation with my friend. Okay, off we go. But, uh, <laughs> I want to come back to that thread, actually, of the sure. cultural differences a little bit later in our in this podcast. But I want to segue no into um, the circus part of the your introduction to the circus. And as kids, every kid goes to the Barnum and Bailey circus and is fascinated by, you know, the clowns and the elephants and everything that's going on. And some yeah. X number of years ago, uh, Guy Liberté started this organization called Cirque du Soleil, which was a completely different kind of circus. And you uh, got involved in the relatively early years of its uh, development as an organization. And what, you know, what was that like for, um, the boy in you to sort of walk into a circus environment and all of a sudden be sort of taking what you knew professionally and technically into yeah. this sort of playful, artistic, you know, phenomena. Uh, Scott, you don't ask bad questions. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great. Uh, when, when I joined Cirque, I'd, or I've been working for eight or nine years. Uh, so, it was a bit later on, and honestly, I didn't know Cirque du Soleil from Barnum and Bailey or from, mm -hmm. from anything else. Uh, I went to finish my master's degree in 2000 and had the decision about whether to live like a student or to live the way that I normally lived and just blow through a bunch of money. Uh, so I chose the latter. I, again, I mentioned before I'm at frugal. <laughs> <laughs> So when I finished, I needed money. So I applied everywhere. Uh, and there was an opening for Cirque du Soleil in, in Las Vegas. So I just threw my resume out uh, and got got the normal, uh, I call it a, a please, F, uh, please F off letter. You know, thank you very much for your interest. So I, I just ignored it and then went about my business. And they called back when I no longer needed money and said, we have an opening now. Would you be interested in coming for an interview? And honestly, in my mind, Scott, I was thinking free weekend in Las Vegas. <laughs> I went down and I had probably the worst interview I've ever given in my life, or in my mind it was, because I, <laughs> I was relaxed. I was flippant. I wasn't stressed out. It was, ah, I don't need this. I don't even know who you are. <laughs> and, then I watched, and then I watched the show that night and my mind was blown. <laughs> you know, we, we can watch... Uh, I'm a, I have a huge passion for what the human body is able to accomplish or the human mind or the, the human emotion that when people are at their best in, in any portion of, of their being, I love watching it. I could, I could watch a carpenter build a bench who's a brilliant carpenter for hours. Mm. Just enjoy it. Uh, but, but these people and what they were able to execute on stage was, uh, for want of a better term, magic. Mm. Uh, Watching a, a, you know, the, the Gretzky to the pass in, in the 87 Canada Cup, it was like, what? Really? That's happening? Okay, it just did. There we go. Uh, and, and then I was hooked and I was kicking myself for doing such a crappy interview. <laughs> but, but then I gambled a bit and then went home and they called within a couple of days and and made an offer and I made a counter offer. And like I said, it was meant to be a one year contract just to see what it was like. And, uh, I fell in love with it. Yeah. The, uh, 
so it didn't I, I didn't find that it brought out any of the the boy enjoying the circus mm-hmm. it, it brought out more of the holy crap that is cool. possible cool. how can how can I help that mm-hmm. so I want to play off that because a lot of the listenership are people in performance and human performance and so you have the traditionalist sort of approach to call it off ice off snow off whatever training and you get in the gym and you're racking weights and you're doing stuff you go into an environment like this and i have sort of my predispositions to what i what i would expect the environment to be like but i'm really curious to hear from you you've got multiple cultures you've got multiple pathways of development you've got multiple types of call it artistic athlete you know whether they're balancing uh you know whether they're using their body in all kinds of crazy physical movement spaces uh, whether they're climbing whether they're flying all this stuff yeah and each of them is a little bit different i'm really curious what you know and i'm and i'm kind of excited about this part of the conversation because i want to know about you know what you discovered in that that kind of rocked your world from that traditionalist maybe standpoint the standpoint of walking in from a guy who trained hockey players to wow i've got people you know and they all have different ways of doing things what did you learn from that what did you cultivate from that what did you realize from that it was an incredible lesson in humility scott uh Unlike sport, uh, and, and it's arguable depending on the sport you're talking about, there's no off-season. Hmm. You know, if you're doing 472 shows a year, uh, it, you don't have two or three months off to like, oh, There's only 365 days. That's it. That's <laughs> so it. You can do the math. <laughs> it. It doesn't, this, again, it's, we're all putting people on the moon here, Scott. <laughs> it doesn't take rocket science to figure out. Uh, so... I really had to take a look at first how they did things and make sure that I parked my ego immediately. Mm. Uh, these people are, are incredible gift, incredibly gifted. And I think that all the people that, that you work with at the level that you work at right now and the people that I work with at the level I work at right now, they all have gifts. So uh, an error that I had when my ego was a little bigger when I was in my late twenties and, and early thirties was I felt the need to let people know what I knew mm. uh, rather than hearing what they knew mm. and what protected them. Uh, fortunately, I was kind of over that and watching the show made me fully over that uh, when I walked into in the stare. So I spent a lot of time listening to, to what made sense for them and then rather than reinventing something for them, finding ways to, to tweak their reality a little bit. And why don't we try things this way mm. just for this thing and, and see if we can sort it out rather than saying, we're going to, we're going to give you a new uh, one and a half hour workout program. That's going to do this for you and do that for you. Well, crap, I don't have the time. I got two shows today. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do that. I already do this and this and this and this and this, and I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then you focus on well, in this part you're not fine. So how can we how can we work with it and how can we help it? Uh, and really taking the focus from what the traditional sense may have been in my mind at the time, where I'm going to go in and help them uh, to more how can I help them keep helping themselves? 
mm-hmm. in a slightly different way. Uh, and and that that quite resonated. It was it was funny. The cast that I worked with at first at Mystera it was it was the oldest show on the strip. It'd been around since '93. And I was told before I went in that it's an older cast. They're grumpy. They're very set in their ways. They they don't like new things. So just go in and do your job and cover things and everything should be fine. I had never found that at all. Hmm. Uh, I just went in and, and let people be people. I, I, I didn't go in expecting to be a fan. And I didn't expect them to be my fan. Uh, nor did I need them to be my friend if we became friends later. Fantastic. Uh, but I'm here. Let's see what's going on. You're not doing the show today. I am doing the show today. So can we find something in the middle where maybe we can both do the show tomorrow? And we kind of went from there. But had I gone in with, with this is what I know from my time in sport without appreciating this is what I've done or in the case of the Alexi brothers who are the, the hand-balancing duo on there still there now in their in their late 40s uh, who've been a traditional circus family for generations going in and telling them how they need to do stuff I don't think so maybe finding out what they've done and seeing if I can enrich their lives fuller because I know that when I hear what they've done it's enriched my life a lot more and will help enrich somebody else later on down the road mm, that's awesome viewpoint yeah. Really what what is something that um or there could be many things but that you cultivated from the way these artistic athletes prepare themselves regardless of the the the, the schedule so to speak yeah. their, their constant preparation that you would take from that into your current work with non-artistic athletes so if you were working with a you know if you went back to working in hockey or what have you what 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 would sort of what would change in terms of your lens of approach from having spent time with these kinds of athletes? Uh, if I were to go back in and, and work in ice hockey as an example, uh, then I, I don't know if the change would be because of working with circus athletes or because of maturing as a practitioner. I, mm. I, I think they both happened in tandem. So, We'll go with it's because of working with circus athletes. Um, realizing that, that we do have these, these nuclear information and these, these fundamental principles, but at the same time, every individual is different. And if we have a, a bell curve of what works, most of those who are exceptional uh, fall outside or fall within the lower and upper lemon. Hmm. You know, they're, they're not in the, the bigger portion of the belt, so more than one standard deviation away. Uh, finding out what works for them. Uh, you know, a, a big thing with, uh, with flying aerialists, for example, is particularly if they have a shoulder injury, for me, it's finding their neutral position of the shoulder to start working in. Mm-hmm. Not what the neutral says in the textbook, mm-hmm. what their neutral is. Because mm-hmm. if you want to do a skin the cat or, or a dislocation maneuver on rings, you can't be here. Mm-hmm. it's not possible. So where do they need to be and where do they need to be stable? Then we find that point and mm. work within, within their bodies to start from their foundations and build their way out. Mm. So I, I think that if, if there's something that I would do differently in the training and, and the rehab I did with, with hockey players in the earlier parts of my career, it would be 
probably more flexibility with the individual mm. instead of uh, I never like to think that I was cookie cutter, but uh, at the same time, we, we all have that beast in us that says, well, if it's worked here, then it must work there. Uh, but to, to take a little bit more time and to realize that, yes, these are some fundamental principles. If this is weak, then it's got to be stronger. If this is short, then it's got to be longer. <laughs> if this isn't where it meant, it's meant to be, then you've got to put it there or have your body find a way to put it there. Mm. So it's basic, but how do we do that so it works for you? Mm. Uh, you know, okay. A great story about a clown on the stair, actually. Uh, he's still performing there. Now he's in his 80s. So he was in his wow. 70s. He was in his 70s when I was there. Uh, and quite physical in his performance. He had a very bizarre, or not bizarre, bizarre for me to see at the time, uh, but a very routine routine that he always did in mm -hmm. physical preparation. Nothing I would ever look at and go, oh, that totally makes sense, but it's quite good. And I remember one animation where he's going around warming up the crowd and he fell down the stairs in the auditorium. And my radio came up saying, you know, Rico, be ready. And he stood up and he kept doing his animation. And then just before the show was starting, he exits and he came up the stairs. And every day, like clockwork, he would always walk past where I was working and watching the show. And he would always come in to say hello. But this time he came in to say hello, but then he started throwing things and he was quite angry. So I said, Brian, are you okay? Are you okay? And he said, yes, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I said, are, no, really, are you okay? Because it wasn't like him to be agitated. He said, yes, did you see it? And I said, yes, I saw it. That's why I'm waiting for you. Are you okay? And he said, was it funny? <laughs> I said, well, for me, no. But <laughs> Oh, okay, can I have a bag of ice? And I said, sure. <laughs> Most people live further in their 70s and they fall down the stairs, they break a hip. But... <laughs> had his routine in place and he was so physically fit not just for someone his age for someone my age at the time it was a non-starter wow yeah tell me about because one of the things that i find interesting about that world that can sort of transcend into sport as we know it more now and into sociological uh, interconnection because this is kind of a, I think a big part of today's world mm -hmm. is this multi multicultural experience sure. and being able to respect individual differences and being able to respect these different cultures and the way people think and I'm really curious from your perspective what you learned about humanity and working in the circus and, and all this stuff, especially with all the sort of stuff that's going on now in the world with some of the nationalist viewpoints and sort of people withdrawing and, and everything else that's going on in the world. We, I think we need a little bit more of this sort of understanding of each other versus this kind of, uh, you know, ignorance of one another. So I'd love to hear that. Yeah. I, it's a, it's a great question, Scott, and it, it's one that, that resonates with me a lot. I'm, I'm living in Switzerland now, and it's a it's an absolutely beautiful country, and, and I, I love being here. Uh, it's a very uh, homogeneous culture, however. Uh, immigration is relatively new, uh, only within the last five decades. So, you know, if I take a look at some of the things that make me crazy with what can seem like... Uh, institutionalized uh, ethnicism, uh, I have to step back and go, okay, 
in North America, we've been doing it for 200 years and we still don't have it right. They've been doing it for 50 and they're working on it. So, okay. Uh, but uh, I'm really fortunate for not just my time uh, working in a, a multicultural environment like that. You know, it's beyond just having two import players on your hockey team. Mm. Uh, this is everyone's an import, including you. So way to go. Uh, but also that my daughter was born into it. Mm. Uh, and lived it from an early age and, and still lives it. You know, when, when my clients come by or, or we go to see a show to watch Uncle Elias perform, doing his thing from Finland, uh, it was it was that that humility that I was forced into almost very early during my time with Mustaire that had to transcend not just our technical knowledge but also how people did things. And mm. what was culturally normal for them, uh, it's it's very easy to to fall into the the stereotypical bubbles of every group culturally. Uh, everything from you know, the, the the Russians are closed off and they'll they'll, they'll break your thumbs if you cross them, <laughs> even though that may be exactly how they look in the moment. Uh, to, to all of the, the the Americans are wearing their Make America Great Again caps and Canadians are just bumping into people and getting run over by a car and saying sorry or whatever it is that it might be the, the stereotype. Those are all super easy and they're easy to fall into. Mm. The, the really cool thing though, Scott, is when you, as, as you know, I'm sure, you, you become close to the Russian because your defenses are down. And you learn how to say hello and goodbye and to swear a little bit in the language and to tell a joke, learn when to be respectful to their parents and to their children and when their children are being disrespectful to you and you honor it within their house and they come into your house and they do the same thing. And then you get let in and guess what? They go beyond the culture like that, just like we all do and they become humans. Mm. As we all are. Uh, you know, to, to paraphrase Kennedy, we all love our children. We all breathe the same air. We all inhabit this small planet. Uh, we're all here. We're not a great deal different. Mm. And to, to apply it to our technical uh, expertise, those nuclei of information, they're all the same for everybody. I don't care where you're from. Yeah, you, you might only have one leg and be a fantastic B-boy artist. So that means you've got one less piece of anatomy. All right, fair enough. Mm -hmm. The rest of it, which all functions the same way as well. So it it helped to build some of that that humility. And every culture that I've come across appreciates some very very basic things. Uh, one of them are the humility we spoke about before, and the confidence we spoke about before. Almost every culture appreciates someone that says they don't know but means it mm. and has something else to back it up and that wants to say, let's find a solution for it. Mm. No, I don't know. But they respect the things that I also teach my daughter. I've got very few rules for my daughter. She, she's going to school in Switzerland, so there's enough boxes for her to <laughs> have rules for. Uh, one is that she, be, that she is kind. Uh, she treats other people the way that she wants to be treated, not how she expects to be treated. She is respectful. And she works hard. Hmm. Those are the, the prime things that I go with. 
I have yet to find a culture where those are not appreciated. Mm. Even if it doesn't seem like they are, and it's very easy to say, those people are lazy. Those people don't know this. Those people are arrogant. Those people think that way. Ah, do they? Really? Mm-hmm. Let's go in the chat and find out. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm going to use this moment to segue to a little part I do in my uh, podcast, which is read people's purpose from a book that I discovered a number of years ago called The Day You Were Born. And it was written by this woman, Linda Joy Joyce, who's an astrologer. So she combined astrology and numerology. And so I read it. Whether it resonates or not is up to you. And uh, we, we go from there. But uh, you are a Capricorn 8. Yeah. And your purpose is to overcome your feelings of insecurity and despair, to use them to strengthen your soul. This in turn allows you to open your heart and receive the abundance of love that is yours. What a wonderful life I've had. I only wish I'd realized it sooner. Uh, Sidonie Gabriel Collette was the, the writer of that quote. Capricorn 8s throw themselves into life and live it to the fullest, or live in a small world and strive hopelessly for control. Remember, in Capricorn, there is no such thing as control. Fate plays an important role in the life of a Capricorn 8. It's there to get them balanced. Without fate, they could refuse to experience life. Capricorn 8 must not waste time avoiding a spiritual path. If they ignore spirit, balance will ignore them. Without spirit, they will never feel the security and power they seek. Capricorn 8s must learn to give of themselves. Giving alone will expand their consciousness and make them feel as if life is worth living. Giving alone, they are ambitious and jealous. They should remember that too much of anything can be destructive. They need to remember that the ability to handle outer pressure is only achieved through faith. With faith, the world will become a friend, not an enemy. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering, when when you you read passages from that book does it usually like blow people's heads or yeah it usually yeah. does yeah okay nice. <laughs> <laughs> about eight out of time ten times people go what the f so uh yeah, yeah. it's it's a yeah i'm sorry that's the best i have right now is yeah yeah, yeah. no problem yeah. it's 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 uh, well that's the reason i do it because i <laughs> i tell the story i've told the story a couple times on the podcast but You'll appreciate this. I had a saying, some men see things as they are and say why I dream things and never worse and say why not taped to my desktop for many years. And then I found this book and I go and I flip to Sagittarius 3 and I start reading and I read the purpose and I go, oh, that sounds very much like me. And the first line, which I read your quote was some men see things as they are and say why I dream things that never were and say why not. And I went, uh, what the F? Like that's pretty wild, man. So... So I I read it for most people, and they usually there's something about it. So it's cool. But uh, the thing that's cool about the book and when it starts talking about purpose is it's not it's usually not mission driven purpose. It's more kind of this internal sort of spiritual connectivity to what you're really all about, and that's what I like about it. So yeah, I can always send it to you if you want. So. Yeah, please let me know where it, where it, where it lives and where it comes from. I would. I would love to, to grab it just so I can be freaked out on a more regular basis. That'd be <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> the, 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 uh, it, it, it resonated for me in, in two really uh, 
poignant ways. Uh, you know, when it talked in, in, in the, the opening salvo <laughs> about uh, avoiding your despair and, and being careful to, to acknowledge it. Uh, it's, it's easy when you're growing up when you don't have a whole bunch and your parents are divorcing and there's a bunch of other stuff going on. It's, it's easy to focus on that. Uh, I was I was just so thankful that that my my grandparents never let me, uh, but it was always done through love. It was never done through well, suck it up, princess, and, and away you go. It was showing a different path. Uh, so I, I didn't get the the opportunity to live there for too long, which was which was amazing. Uh, and you know, certainly the the, the spiritual path is is one that I take in incredibly seriously. Uh, I have a very strong sense of faith, but I'm, I'm not religious at all, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, but also with the, the, the intellectual uh, path that my mother sent me down on very, very early, I, I couldn't just decide to be faithful or religious just because. So you know, I read the Bible and I read the Quran and I read the Torah and you know, a few of the Hindu texts and the Lao Tzu, just trying to understand what, you know, some of the things we were talking about with respect to parallels between cultures mm -hmm. uh, are also quite in existence with uh, the religions of the world where, you know, be kind and, and treat people the way that you want to be treated and, you know, don't be a dick. <laughs> 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 uh, and and it's, it's really resonated with me and I... Uh, I don't believe in, in coincidence, uh, never have. Things always happen for a reason. For me, when they happen, it's rarely the reason I think or rarely how I expect them to happen, but it, it, it certainly does go that way. Uh, and it, you know, with a 13-year-old with now, as, as she is starting to have her own spiritual questions, the best that I can do with her, even when she asks directly, is to, to go with the example as much as possible. Uh, rather than saying, you must be this way, I, I really want her to discover her her own path and to, to be open to as much as she can. And also to call her on it when she does things that teenagers do everywhere and go, I'm an atheist. I just don't believe in anything. Fantastic. How come? <laughs> well, you know, the stuff, like, well, okay. That doesn't really work. Poor kid. I mean, she's got me as a dad. Oh, I love her sometimes. <laughs> Talk about that a little bit. What changed for you when you became a father? What what, what changed in you when you became a dad? The, 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 once I got past the the, the terror, <laughs> it, it was it was she was she was born in Switzerland, and the doctor assured me beforehand that even if there was problems, all the doctors spoke English, it would be fine. Of course, there was problems. No one spoke English, and changed. <laughs> and my drug wife is trying to translate for me. I asked the obstetrician as he's walking up, like, "So, my mother and the baby will be okay?" And he said, "Nah, I don't know." <laughs> and he wandered off. And like, ah. So, so once I got over that, <clears throat> that took a couple of days. I don't mind saying. Um, the first thing that changed, and it's very superficial, but it, it kind of reflects on on the deeper part is as I was driving uh, my wife and daughter home from the hospital, I became aware that I wasn't speeding. And I always did. 
And <laughs> it was it was natural for me. It was unnatural to drive a car the speed limit or to, to not try to get where I was going the fastest. And I, I didn't know why. But even if I consciously wanted to decide to have my right foot go down a little further, it just it would come away very quickly again. But it was that realization that you know we're no longer only responsible for us. We've been given a tremendous gift. And I, I've told my daughter from before she was born, when she was just in, in the belly, that I am so fortunate that she chose me as her father. Hmm. Uh, and I need to honor that and really try to develop her as much as possible. Uh, within that, though, and that's something that's, that's come uh, over time, is that doesn't mean being totally selfless. Mm. Uh, because if if a child requires a foundation and a pillar, if that pillar is always reaching up and not paying any attention to its own base, uh, then it doesn't stay a pillar for very long. Mm-hmm. So, you know, making sure that I'm as grounded as I can be, and I, I'm not 100% effective at it all the time. I don't know if any of us are. Well, maybe, yeah, some people are, but I'm not one of them, for sure. Uh, <laughs> But maintaining that focus, uh, you know, when I'm uh, personally and spiritually and physically well off and professionally fulfilled and personally fulfilled, I am such a better dad. Mm. It's it's not even funny. And it, it's great that, that she's grown up in such an open environment that uh, when I'm not there she's now at a point where she's comfortable calling me on it which is which is fantastic and you know not in a nice fluffy canadian way she does it in the swiss way going what's wrong with you Ed? (laughs) (laughs) i don't know but i'll i'll find out so being being a dad really made me uh realize that there was more more that i had to be responsible for Hmm. you know even though you know, in my family life, I was responsible for, for many things as well. Uh, but when it's your own child and it's a gift that's there, and it's a gift that the universe has chosen to bestow upon you, well, it's, a, it's a different story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, honor that. Very cool. Um, we're getting close to the end here. I have one, two questions for you. One is, um, if you were to meet yourself, your 20-year-old self, uh, tomorrow in a bar, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, <laughs> go home and sober up. <laughs> well, 20 year old self. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that would be, but no, it's, seriously, I, I would, I would tell that guy to make sure he doesn't miss the doors that are open and to make sure that he doesn't take the frying pans across the head as being anything but lessons because uh, that that guy could be quite uh, egotistical and self-indulgent at times uh, and it got me into some trouble but it was trouble that I'm glad I got into at this point but had I not recognized the doors that were opening in potential situations that were uh, on the surface quite nasty, then 
I, I wouldn't have been able to step through them, but uh, I would just make sure I reminded myself to keep his eyes open mm. and pay attention. Cool. So you uh, you will pass from this earth one day, hopefully not for a long time. What do you what do you want to be remembered for, or how do you how do you want to be wish to be remembered? Oh. Yeah, you, you you didn't you didn't say there was going to be a light conversation, did you? <laughs> I don't have light conversation. <laughs> Keep those cocktail parties, which I don't enjoy much. <laughs> <laughs> I always find a nice little corner and a nice cocktail, which is all good. Um, what are, I hope that that I'm remembered for for being kind and and making a positive impact on others. Uh, from a, a personal perspective and I hope my daughter remembers a loving papa and when she's raising her own kids she has more uh, ammunition for yeah this is how I would like to do it instead of oh, this is how I'm not going to do it because I had as I said, they're both lessons we get from our parents, right? So mm-hmm. I'm just hoping she's moving a little bit more on the, yeah, let's do it this way side. That's cool. That's good. I like the way that one finished. Good yeah. job, sir. Very nice to spend an hour with you and to learn about you. And uh, hopefully we'll do it, uh, not necessarily at a cocktail party, but over a beer one day. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's try to do that. Do you make it over this way anytime? I'm tr- hoping to get over there maybe next year to uh, watch a ski event and see my, one of the last NHL, ex-NHL players that I trained still, Max Lapierre. Tr- he he plays in Lugano, go over and watch him play. So we'll do a Switzerland tour, catch up with a few people. We know how old we're getting when we, we take a look at the people we used to work with and it's like, well, crap, they're retired now. <laughs> How'd that happen? Yeah, I was watching a Canadians game the other day, and there's only one player left that was there when I was there. And so it's uh, wow, changes very quickly. How's your little one? My daughter is awesome. She's uh, she's ten. She got to be off school today because of uh, sleet and rain. So she's hanging around the house, and I got to go. Make a sure. snow day in Montreal, or uh, we're in Montreal, and it was rain. Uh, um, freezing rain so freezing rain always screws up the buses so okay let's let's stay in touch that was a pleasure thank you for your time take it easy thanks for joining us today on leave your mark i hope we've left a mark on you today and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.